Thanks for listening to the Rock Hill Podcast. At Rock Hill, we're all about reaching people with the life-giving and life-changing message of Jesus. Listen in as Pastor Matt Chapel teaches how God's Word applies to our everyday lives. Victory from the vineyard. Luke chapter number 20 this morning. And uh, we'll start reading in verse number 9. If you're there, would you say amen? amen? The Bible says this in verse number 9. Then began he to speak, the par- uh, speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard and led it forth to the husbandmen and went into a far country for a long time. And at the season, he sent a servant to the husbandmen that they should give him of the fruit. Everybody say the fruit of the vineyard. But the husbandmen beat him and sent him away empty. And again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Everybody say, my beloved son. son. It may be that they will reverence him when they see him. And when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He shall come and destroy these husbandmen, and shall give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, God forbid. And when he beheld them, and said, What is then that is written, the stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Let's have a word of prayer this morning. Father, thank you for this day that you've given us. God, thank you for this opportunity to come together and to worship you and to look to your word. God, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit this morning. I pray that I could bring a message that would be helpful, practical, and challenging to us this morning. And we love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you would consider yourself a competitive person? Can I see your hands? You would say, I'm a pretty competitive person. I would say that I'm somewhat of a competitive person. I like to win. At our house, we like to play board games sometimes, and sometimes those board games will get pretty competitive, and they'll get pretty heated. There's been some pretty intense games of Monopoly at my house. How many of you enjoy to play Monopoly? Can I see your hands? Some of you play Monopoly? And uh, you know Monopoly is getting intense when you start trading real-life things for Monopoly money, you know? (laughs) I'll be completely honest with you, I did not even know the technical rules for Monopoly, and I'm completely okay with that because I like to make side deals and under-the-table trades, you know. I will trade pretty much any property if Katie gives me a two-minute shoulder rub, right? So I'll give you Boardwalk, Parks Place, whatever you want, just two-minute shoulder rub. I, uh, I like to play Monopoly. I like to get competitive in board games. I remember growing up, my sister Christina, we would like to play the game Skipbo, and uh, we would play Skipbo often, and uh, I remember that we would get so competitive in that, and I would hate losing that if it came down to the end of the game, and if I could tell that I was about to lose the game, I would get so frustrated, and I would throw the cards up in the air and mess up the table, and I would just walk away, and I wouldn't even say anything. I, I don't like to lose. I think there's something in all of us, it's human nature, that we don't like to lose. We, we, we don't want to experience defeat. There's just something in us that whatever we set out to do, we want to conquer that assignment. We want to conquer that goal. We want to be victorious in whatever we are set out to do. And I want to tell you something this morning, that a life of following Jesus is a life that is victorious. It's a life that will bring victory. It's a life that uh, we will win in the end. It's a victorious life. But the problem is so many Christians go through life with a defeated mindset. 
they go through life discouraged and defeated, and I don't know if it can happen, and I don't know if we can see revival, and I don't know if that person will ever get saved, and I don't know, our country is too far gone, and I don't know about this, and, and we have a defeated mindset when God has called us to have a victorious mindset. In Numbers chapter number 13, uh, Moses sent out some spies to go and, and uh, look at the uh, land of Canaan, the promised land, the land of their inheritance. And they go, and Joshua and Caleb come back, and Caleb is fired up in Numbers chapter 13. And he's like, hey, we got this. Yeah, there's some giants over there in the promised land, but we can do it. We can experience victory. We can take them. But there were some other spies that came back with a different message. The Bible says this in Numbers chapter 13, verse number 33. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight. Everybody say, in our own sight. We were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. See, that wasn't even the reality, but their perception was their reality. In their own sight. Man, we, don't, we can't beat them in our own sight. We are as grasshoppers. We're too small. I want to remind you today that God has not called us to have a defeated mindset, but a victorious mindset. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57, but thanks be to God. Everybody say thanks. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you have been given victory through Jesus Christ. Is anybody thankful today that we can have victory? The Bible says, but thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. We ought to thank God for the victory that is found in Jesus Christ. And I've entitled this message this morning, Victory from the Vineyard. Because Jesus is going to reveal a great victory. He's going to declare a great victory that we're going to see in a moment. But before we get to the victory, we go through the vineyard. And Jesus is here, and this is in Luke chapter number 20, his final week on earth. This is Passion Week. This is Wednesday, and Jesus is in the temple, and he's teaching to a very attentive crowd. And the reason I say he was teaching to a very attentive crowd is because the day before Jesus went into the temple and he saw the money changers and he saw all the animals and the Bible says that he got angry, righteous indignation and he drove out the money changers out of the temple causing quite the scene. See, what was happening, a part of Passover, a part of the Jewish requirement custom is if you went to the Passover, during Passover, if you went to the temple to worship, it was required of you to bring an animal to sacrifice at the temple. Well, what would happen is Jewish families that were traveling from far away, they did not want to bring an animal with them because sometimes they would be traveling from great distances and so they would show up at the temple and they could just purchase an animal there at the temple. Really, it was a result of their lazy worship. It was a result of convenience. They can just kind of show and go up at the, show up at the temple and buy an animal. And as a result, uh, the uh, people at the temple that were selling the animals, they would put the price way up. In fact, uh, commentator William Barclay says that uh, a dove during this time that was sold at the temple uh, would have been 20 times more than an average dove that you could buy elsewhere. And so Jesus sees this money-making scheme, and he sees this that this temple has been turned into a money-making operation. And Jesus gets angry, and he drives them out of the temple. And people were thinking, wow, this is, this is unusual. This is different. And so the next day in the temple, he has a very attentive crowd because they're wondering, what is he going to do next? What is he going to say next? And so now, as Jesus has this audience, he begins to tell them this parable. And it's one of the most profound parables in all of Scripture. It's the parable of the vineyard and the tenant farmers. Now, the parable, by way of introduction, is not very difficult to understand. There is a, there is a man that owns a vineyard. 
and he decides to lease out the vineyard to some farmers to take care of the land. That would have been very common in this agricultural society that Jesus was speaking this parable to. And so this would have been common. There's an owner of the vineyard. He leases out the vineyard to some farmers, and uh, they were expected to uh, give of the proceeds of, of that vineyard. And uh, there was some time that passed, and the owner of the vineyard sent some of his servants to go and collect some of the fruit. And when they go to collect the fruit of the vineyard, the, the tenant farmers that were kind of just working the ground, they decided to beat and murder the servants that came. Completely uncalled for, completely unexpected. This would have been a shocking parable. Now, the initial application to this parable, we know in Isaiah chapter 5, verse number 7 says this, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And so the initial application and interpretation is to Israel, but there is an extension, and the application that applies to us this morning is life-changing and life-altering if we can grasp the truth that Jesus was communicating uh, here in this parable. And so what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to uh, give us four ways that we can find victory from the vineyard. Four ways that we can live a victorious Christian life. If you're taking notes this morning, number one is this. We've got to recognize the privilege of serving God. We've got to recognize the privilege of serving God. Would you notice verse number nine? Then began he to speak the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, and he led it forth to the husbandman and went into a far country for a long time. So this was not uncommon. The owner of the vineyard, he plants a vineyard, and he leases it out to some farmers. And this would have been a great privilege. This would have been a great opportunity. I want you to notice the abundance of the vineyard. In Matthew's accounting in the same parable, uh, in Matthew's accounting, in Matthew chapter number 21, verse 33, it says this. Here, another parable. This was a certain householder which planted, everybody say planted, planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to the husbandmen and went into a far country. And so we see the owner did a great job at planting this vineyard. Not only did he plant the vineyard, and so the farmers didn't have to put in the initial investment. They didn't have to put in the initial work. The, the owner planted the vineyard, but he prepared the vineyard. He hedged it round about. He provided for the vineyard. He digged a wine press in it, and then he built a tower, so he protected the vineyard. This owner thought of everything. This was not uh, just kind of a side vineyard. This was a great investment. He thought of everything. He provided everything for this vineyard. The Bible says this in Isaiah chapter 5, verse number 4, what could have been done more to my vineyard? See, Jesus was saying, hey, hey I've done everything possible. I've provided everything for this vineyard. I thought of everything. This would have been a great job. This would have been, in fact, a dream job. If you lived in the society, you would have loved to have a job like this because there was uh, liberty to work the ground how you wanted. There was freedom. There was not someone constantly checking over your soldier, uh, shoulder. You had creativity to work the ground uh, however you saw fit. And so this was a great opportunity. This would have been a dream job that would have brought, uh, brought a very stable income. And, and Isaiah says, what more could have been done? He said, hey, I thought of everything. And I want, to, I want to tell you this morning, I want to remind you this morning, that God has given us everything that we need in order to live a life of godliness. He's thought of everything. Sometimes we think, I don't know if I can make it in the Christian life, and I feel like I'm stuck, and I feel like I don't have any forward motion. I, don't, I feel like I'm just not quite getting there. And I want to tell you this morning that God has given us all the resources, and he's given us everything that we need to live a life of godliness. Second Peter chapter 1, verse number 3. According as his divine power hath given us all things. Everybody say all things. All things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and to virtue. We are blessed. We have access to the word of God. We have access to the house of God. We have the power of the Holy Spirit living within us. We have a great privilege this morning and an abundance of blessings that God has provided for us. Have you ever tried to accomplish an assignment or a job and you did not have the right tools 
at hand to complete the job. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You tried to do something, you didn't have the right tools. I remember Kate and I, when we first got married, uh, we uh, rented out our first ever apartment and we, we, we brought all our stuff upstairs in this one bedroom upstairs apartment and, and I was getting ready to put our bed together. And uh, to this day, I'm not much of a handyman. I don't have a lot of tools. I do have a tool bag, I'm proud to say that. Uh, but when we first got married, I didn't have any tools. And for a long time, my tool bag was a Ziploc baggie. I just kind of, whatever I found, I would put it in there. But when we first got married, I didn't have any tools. And I remember I was trying to put our bed together and I needed a screwdriver. But I didn't have a screwdriver, but I was too stubborn to go ask someone for help. And so I just had a little butter knife, and I was thinking, I can just do it with this. And I was down at the bed, and I was trying to screw in uh, the screws to our bed with a butter knife. And I was getting so angry and so frustrated because I didn't have the right tools. And maybe in your life this morning, you're frustrated with your walk with God. Maybe you're frustrated at your current circumstances. Maybe you feel like you're just not quite getting there. You're not quite achieving. You're not quite getting the victory that you wanted. And I want to encourage you today that use the right tools that God has given you. God has given us everything that we need. We have access to the word of God. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you taking advantage? Are you being faithful to church? Are you in the word of God? Are you being filled with the Holy Spirit? He's given us everything that we need. See, this owner of the vineyard was a good, good owner. And he said, I thought of everything. I provided everything that you need. But not only the abundance, also the uh, accountability from the owner. Notice what the Bible says in verse number nine. And a certain man planted a vineyard and he led it forth to the husbandmen. He leased it out to the farmers and went into a far country for a long time. And so now we have this test of the tenants. Now the owner is not there to watch them anymore. And and in reality, a test is the genesis of a testimony. A a test is the catalyst for a testimony. A test is the beginning of a testimony. See, a lot of people want a a great testimony, but they don't want to go through the tests. And who you are when no one is watching is who you really are. And so now this owner, he goes off on a long trip, and and he's not there anymore. What will the farmers do? What are they going to do with this free time? Notice verse number 10. And at the season he sent... Everybody say, at the season. At the season, season, he sent a servant to the husbandmen, to the farmers, that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. And so at the season, this was fair. The owner sent the servant at the right time. He said, okay, uh, you've had plenty of time. It's now harvest season. And so the servant goes, and he is expecting some fruit. And uh, he he is wanting some fruit. And I want to tell you this morning that, that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we are expected to bear fruit. The owner expected, this was a fair deal, the owner expected that the tenant farmers would produce fruit. And we as tenant farmers, as worshiping God and as Jesus followers, we are expected to bear fruit. The Bible says this in John 15, verse number 16, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And so we are expected to bear fruit, but what exactly does that mean? Because a lot of times we hear things like that and we hear kind of Christian terminology. Hey, make sure you're bearing fruit, AJ. Make sure you're bearing fruit. But what exactly does that mean? What exactly is the Bible saying when it's saying that we should bring forth fruit? Well, the Bible gives us several categories and I'm going to read them uh, very quickly. Is it okay if I give you some scripture references this morning? The Bible says this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, and against such there is no law. And so uh, fruit is, is our character, and it's our conduct. Okay, it's good works. Colossians 1.10 says that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto pleasing, being fruitful. Everybody say fruitful. 
being fruitful in every good work and increasing the knowledge of God. And so it's our character, it's our conduct, it's our good works for the Lord, it's our ministry to the Lord. That is a byproduct, that is fruit. Uh, another one is witnessing. Romans 1.13 says, Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purpose to come unto you, but was let hitherto that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. Paul was saying, hey, I want to go to different churches and I want to see people saved. And those people that are saved, that's fruit that's going to abound. That is fruit. And so if you lead someone to the Lord or someone you invite to church comes and gets saved, that's fruit that's going to abound to your account. And so witnessing can bring fruit. Giving can bring forth fruit. Philippians 4.17 says, not that I desire a gift, but I desire fruit. Everybody say fruit. Fruit that may abound to your account. And so when we give to the Lord, and we give sacrificially, and we give to the work of the Lord here at Rock Hill Baptist Church, we are adding fruit to our account. It's an internal investment. That's fruit. Uh, praise is fruit. Hebrews 13, verse 15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. See, sometimes praise is a sacrifice. Sometimes you walk into church, and you don't feel like lifting your hands in worship, and you don't feel like worshiping God with all your heart and soul, and that's exactly when you need to lift up your voice and praise the Lord God Almighty. That's exactly when we need to praise God. Even when we don't feel like it, it requires a sacrifice. And so fruit is praise. It's sacrificing our praise to the name of Jesus. And I want to say that all these things are not necessary for salvation, but they are a byproduct. They are a fruit of salvation. And often where there is no fruit, there is actually no root. And many people that aren't producing any fruit, and there's no evidence of their belief, and there's no evidence of their faith, maybe faith is maybe because they never made that real to begin with. See, the proclamation of faith without the production of fruit is of no value. The proclamation of faith, you can say that you have faith, but if there is no production of fruit, that is of no value. There needs to be fruit. The owner expects it. When God looks at our life, he expects us to bear some fruit. He expects us to work his land. And so we need to recognize, first of all this morning, the privilege of serving God. He's given us everything that we need, and we are expected to bring forth fruit. Number two this morning, we've got to remain faithful through the opposition. We've got to remain faithful through the opposition. Notice what the Bible says in verse number 10. And at that season, he sent a servant to the husbandman that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. But the husbandman beat him and sent him away empty. And here's the shocking part of the story, because up until now, everything is normal in the parable. Up until now, the audience and the listeners that day in the temple were thinking, okay, Jesus, yeah, we get this, we get that, we understand, okay, okay, okay. But then when the farmers beat the servant, that was what was shocking. That was what was uncalled for. There's this opposition. They didn't do it just once. Notice verse 11. And again, he sent another servant. They beat him also, and they entreated him shamefully. And he sent him away empty. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. And so these tenant farmers, they abused their liberty they violated the contract. They, they acted uh, uh, harshly. They, they, they treated them shamefully. They violated this contract. Now, who were the messengers? Who were those servants that the owner sent? Who is Jesus talking about? He's picturing the Old Testament prophets and the prophets that were proclaiming the coming Messiah. All the way from Moses to John the Baptist, those that would preach the law and those that would preach, hey, there, there's a Messiah coming and preaching sin and repentance. Those were the prophets. And how, did, how were they treated throughout history? Jeremiah 20, verse number two says this, then pastors smote Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks uh, that were in the high gate of Benjamin. And so Jeremiah was put in prison. First Kings 22, 27 says, speaking of Micaiah the prophet, and, and, and say, thus saith the king, put this fellow in the prison and feed him with the bread of affliction and with the water of affliction until I come in peace. And so the prophets were mistreated. The Bible says in Acts chapter 7, verse number 52, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And so Jesus is giving them a little history lesson. 
And he's saying, hey, all the prophets that came and they were preaching salvation and they were preaching sin and repentance, you treated them shamefully. And I want to tell you this morning, the devil knows that he cannot touch God. And so he's going to do everything in his power to attack his servants and to attack his messengers. And if you are serious about the gospel and you are serious about following Jesus, I want to tell you two things. One, you have a message as well. You have a message to go and deliver. It's the message of the gospel. It's the good news of salvation. We've got to get out into our community and say, hey, Jesus saves. It's the life-giving and life-changing message of Jesus. That's what we're all about. That's why we're here. Does anybody believe today that Jesus has the power to save? This is bigger than us. And so, so we have a message to declare. And if we're going to declare that message, know this, opposition is coming. There's going to be mistreatment. There's going to be accusations. People aren't going to understand your motives. They're going to misunderstand you. Opposition is coming. But you've got to have a calling that's deeper than commitment. And you've got to say, hey, uh, with God's calling comes God's enabling. And I know that, hey, this might be a little bit difficult and these people might not get it. But I know that God has called me to do something. And I'm just going to keep on moving forward in the calling that God has for me. I don't care what anybody else says. I'm going to remain faithful through the opposition. And so these servants come and they're treated shamefully. There's this opposition. Notice the third point this morning is this. We've got to realize the extent of God's love. We've got to realize the extent of God's love. If you're with me so far, say amen. amen. It's not even warm in here anymore. Realize the extent of God's love. We see God's love in two ways here in this parable. In his patience, first of all. Notice verses 10 through uh, 12. And at the season he sent a servant to the husbandman that should that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. But the husbandman beat him and sent him away empty. Now, if you were the owner of the vineyard and you sent your messenger to go and collect the fruit that belonged to you rightfully, and the people that you hired to take care of the farmer and to take care of the ground, if they killed or they hurt or they injured that messenger, what would you do? You'd probably be upset and you'd probably go and seek vengeance. You, you'd probably want to go and say, hey, what's up, and kind of get even. But notice what the owner does in verse number 11. And again, everybody say again. Again, he sent another servant. He said, let me give him one more chance. Let me just try this one more time. And he sent another servant. They beat him also, and they entreated him shamefully, and he sent him away empty. Now what would you do? You sent two servants. You're the owner. Notice what the owner does in verse number 12. And again, he sent a third and they wounded him also and cast him out. He said, I got to give him one more chance. Maybe they're just really struggling for money. Maybe they didn't have the fruit ready. Maybe something was wrong. Maybe they're going through a hard time. I got to give him one more chance and another chance. Uh, and he gives him time and time again. One author said this, God's loving kindness was not without the husband's been cruelty and violence. Each step of their wickedness and obstinance, he was met with renewed mercy and fresh calls to repentance. Is anybody thankful today for the mercy of God and for the patience of God that he has patience toward us? Even though, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. I was reading recently about uh, one of our military ships in the Navy, the USNS Mercy. And uh, it's one of the third, I think we have a picture this morning, it's one of the third largest ships in our military fleet. And what's interesting about this warship and this battleship is that this ship carries no weapons. And essentially this ship is a floating hospital. And so when there are times of crisis, this ship will go and meet the medical needs of our military. But it also goes and helps during humanitarian purposes, during times of crisis and during times of tsunami. It will go 
and uh, help people in need. And this happened with this particular ship in 2006 in Asia. And when the people saw that this American ship was just going to assist people in need and going to uh, assist medical need because of their because of their kindness, when they saw that, it reshaped uh, the opinions of many different people. Many Muslims had a different opinion of America. And because of that incident, one leader said this, the mercy, speaking of the ship, the mercy may be the most powerful ship the Navy owns. See, there is something powerful, and there is something wonderful about mercy. And I have good news for you this morning, because the God that we serve, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 4, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, aren't you thankful this morning that God is merciful towards us, and even when we didn't deserve it, even when we deserve vengeance, the owner says, let me give him one more chance. I got to give him just one more chance. I got to be patient with him. Maybe he's going through something. I'm going to give him one more opportunity. See, the existence of God's love is amazing, but the extent of God's love is astounding. And so this owner is showing patience. And God, as our Father, shows us patience and mercy. 1 Peter 1, verse number 3 says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice verse number 13. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, What shall I do? Now why would the, why would the owner of the vineyard even ask that question? We all know what we would do. If we sent three servants and three messengers to go and collect what belonged to us, we know what we would want to do. We'd want to get even. The owner says, what shall I do? Notice what it says. I will send my beloved son. It may be that they will reverence him when they see him. The owner says, I know what I'll do. I'm going to send my son my beloved son, and maybe when they see my son and they know who he is, maybe they will respect him. Maybe they'll listen to him. So I'm going to send my, my beloved son. Of course, this is a picture of Jesus Christ. God said it at his baptism in Luke 3, 20, 22. My, be, my beloved son. God said it at his transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, verse number 5. This is my beloved son. You want to know how much God loves us? He sent his only begotten beloved son to die on the cross for our sins so that we might have a home in heaven and a relationship with him. I have one son, he's two years old, and Katie and I can't imagine life without him. And when I think about that, I start to realize the extent of God's love. He sent his beloved son. Notice verse number 14. But when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. And so when they come, they start talking, they start planning, and they start reasoning among themselves. And of course, this, par this parable is completely prophetic in nature. Jesus is speaking to the crowd of what they were about to do in just a few hours. They were reasoning amongst themselves. In fact, John chapter number 11, verse number 53 says this, then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. They were conspiring. They were gonna kill Jesus. And Jesus was letting them know, hey, I know all about your plan. Notice verse 15. So they cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. And of course, again, this is prophetic in nature. Hebrews 13, number 12, verse number 12 says, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. See, they took Jesus outside of the city, and Jesus was letting them know, Hey, I know what you're about to do. I know you're conspiring against me. I know you're planning to kill me and take me outside of the city. Notice verse 15 one more time. So they killed him. What therefore, Jesus asked another question, what therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? Jesus is telling this parable and he says, now what should the owner of the vineyard do unto them? 
They killed his own son. What, 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 should, what should the owner do? What should uh, he now do? Now, uh, in Matthew chapter number 21, in Matthew's accounting of the same parable, they actually answered Jesus, the audience that day. And this is what they say. This is their response to Jesus in verse number 41. They say unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men, and he will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render the fruits in their season. They say, hey, Jesus, we, uh, we know what that owner should do. He should destroy those guys, and he should give that vineyard to someone else. But what they did not know is they were actually revealing their own fate. He should go and destroy them. Jesus confirms their answer in verse number 16 in our text, Matthew, or Luke 20, verse 16. He shall come and destroy these husbandmen, and he shall give the vineyard to others. He's going to destroy them. He's going to displace them. He's going to give this responsibility to someone else. And when they heard it, they said, God forbid. They started to understand what Jesus was talking about. They started to realize the audience that day. They started to realize that Jesus was talking about them. In fact, uh, the Greek word for heard means to, in, in verse number 16, they heard it. It's where we get our word acoustics. They, they, they started to understand it. They started to grasp what Jesus was talking about. They started to comprehend. Wait a second. He's talking about us. Wait a second. He knows that we're about to kill, kill him. Wait a second. He knows about our plan when they heard it. And then they said this in verse number 16, God forbid. They said, no, it's, in the Greek, it's the strongest negative possible. They were saying, no, 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 no. I don't, no, 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 never. God forbid, no, 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 this can't happen. This won't happen. They completely denounced it. They said, no, no, uh, that, that can't happen. And Jesus knew their plan and he knew their plot. And yet he went to the cross anyways. He knew all about their thoughts. He knew all about their plan. And we start to realize the extent of his love, sending his only son. Now at this point in the story, there's not a whole lot of victory. At this point in the story, the owner is not too happy. His servants got killed. They got hurt. His own beloved son was killed, murdered. But I want to give you one more point this morning, and we'll be done. Number four, remember in the end, Jesus always wins. Remember in the end, Jesus always wins. You got one more point in you? One more point in you? Verse number 17, and he beheld them. He beholds them. He intensely looks at the crowd. It's very serious now. It's a very sober moment. He looks at them and he said, What is then that is written, the stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner? Jesus quotes to them Old Testament scripture. He quotes them a verse in, in, in the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 18, verse number 22. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. See, in this time when, when people would go to build buildings and they would go to build uh, houses and different structures, they would go and they would look for rocks and they would want to make sure that the rocks were the right shape and the right size. And as they would look through the rocks, if one had an imperfection or one wasn't shaped the right way, they would reject that stone. They would, we say, hey, this, this one's not good enough. This one's not good enough. They, they would reject the stone. And Jesus said, hey, hey, you have rejected me. You've rejected the stone, the stone which the builders refused and rejected. He says this in verse number 17 of our text. The same is become the head of the corner. That stone that you refused is now become the cornerstone. 
What is he talking about here? What, remember, this parable was prophetic in nature. They're about to kill him. They're about to, they're about to put him on the cross. They're going to reject him. But Jesus said, hey, that stone that you rejected is going to become the cornerstone. What is he speaking of? I want to tell you today that he's speaking of the power of the resurrection. And he was prophesying that, hey, in three days, I'm going to raise from the dead. He was talking about the resurrection. And I want to tell you good news this morning. Only our God can take a rejection and turn it into a resurrection. See, there is great victory with our God. There is great victory because he defeated sin, death, and the grave. And this morning, you might say, hey, I'm in a vineyard season. I'm going through some opposition. Maybe you're not yielding fruit uh, like you would like to. And maybe there's some hiccups and there's some bumps in the road. I want to tell you, because our God is victorious, you can be victorious as well. He said, hey, I'm now become the cornerstone. Can I tell you some good news about the cornerstone? With the cornerstone, there is safety. With the cornerstone, there is shelter. With the cornerstone, there is stability. Maybe you feel like you are just uh, tossed to and fro this morning. Your life is all over the place. I want to tell you that the stability that you're looking for is found in no other person but the person of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He is the cornerstone. See, he took a crushing defeat, what looked like a crushing defeat, and he transformed it into a cornerstone. There's great victory from the vineyard. Why? Because our God is always victorious. In the end, he always wins. I was reading this week about ancient Chinese theater. I do that sometimes in my spare time. I was reading about ancient Chinese theater, and they would have this practice that they would do sometimes where they would have a two-level stage where they would watch the main act unfold on the bottom stage, but on the, but on the upper level of the stage, they would watch the end of the act. And so while they're watching the act unfold, above they can see how it's going to end. And so this produces kind of a hope and an anticipation in the audience. And so when the audience is watching, they'll see the, the, the play unfolding, the act unfolding, but they know what's about to happen. And so if somebody's about to make a mistake or about to give up, they'll kind of shout them down and say, no, don't do it. And they know what's going to happen in the end. Can I encourage you this morning that we know what happens in the end. The final scene has already been written. The script has already been written. We know that in the end, Jesus wins. Does anybody believe today that Jesus wins, that Jesus is victorious? It doesn't matter what your life looks like right now. I want to tell you, give it to Jesus and he can give you the ultimate victory we know how it's going to end because in the end, Jesus always wins. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? Thanks again for listening today. If this message was an encouragement to you, let us know. You can email us at hello at rockhill.church and keep up with all the latest news at rockhill.church or on Instagram at rockhillchurch.